Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Hello, welcome to another episode of In the Landscape. We are back in the studio for another episode recovering from a little bit of an audio mishap last week. So (laughs) hopefully we will be in a good shape today. We'll see. (laughs) Our editors do an amazing job despite our... (laughs) Well, the show must go on, right? It must, yeah. Well, we didn't want to miss our publishing date, I guess, our posting date, as it were. So Mm -hmm. um, forging ahead here in our home studio, yeah, making the best of things. I think that's what all of us are, are attempting to do at the moment. Many of us, anyway, and landscape is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. The getting out, getting getting exercise outdoors. Thank goodness, it's for many of us here in the northern hemisphere. Spring has sprung. I think actually they're having a bit of a cold front sweep through the northeast. Oh um, my gosh, people are posting pictures of <laughs> their garden covered in snow, and yeah. people put out uh, frost blankets. Oh, that's smart. Which I mean, could just be a plastic sheet or an actual sheet, or in some of the plants like pansies, tulips. In theory, they can take it. Now, some of the tender things, like if you put in uh, young vegetables, if you started some things, those could be in, in danger. So I've seen people covering their gardens with clay pots. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, and there's coverings made just for that purpose, but a lot of ad hoc, like whatever it takes to cover, you know, to protect things. Well, and we did try to anticipate and get some information out to our listeners in advance, some of our followers in the Northeast in advance of the cold. So if Mm -hmm. you aren't following us on social media, but you want sort of timely garden tips, Mm -hmm. that's a pretty immediate way for us to post information that we think might be useful, um, at least for the regions that we're particularly tuned into. Um, It's also a great space for people to share things that they're aware of if they want to give tips or a shout out to listeners in other parts of the world. Like we have listeners in Australia and South Africa. So I'm always mindful that like for them, you know, fall must be (laughs) underway at this point. So it's still one of those sort of times in the year when I think just about everywhere is experiencing at least a little bit of mild weather to allow us to get out and, and exercise and then tending to our own garden spaces, maybe turning a little bit inward lately, thinking about vegetable gardens and you know, just making the most out of our outdoor spaces. Right. Or it's just even improving what you have. Mm-hmm. So that could be dividing plants, maybe something that became overgrown. You give it a certain type of a pruning approach or it gets moved. So- well, we have increased our outdoor program. It's so funny. I mean, we, we talk about program a lot in terms of design. And of course, we have made the most of planting where we can, but we've we've added, you know, food and a compost area. And we have, you know, a projector for outdoor movies in our backyard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, was by no means an expensive piece of equipment. It's really just more for the effect. And uh, we don't have a built-in pool where we are, but it is Texas because uh, we live in these neighborhoods where you can go access a community pool fairly easily. And we thought, hey, that's going to be the answer. But as we tentatively kind of reemerge and, and get back to the new normal, <laughs> you know, there's still that feeling that you don't want to be in like huge crowds. So right. we're filling up, you know, the blow up kitty pool and <laughs> that's, it works just fine. So right, to cool we're, off. we're increasing, I guess, the programming that's happening in our own backyard mm-hmm. space because we're not accessing parks and playgrounds and pools and, as much as and we And we're might. using it more too. Yeah. When there's more yeah. activities in your own yard, 
Yeah. Then we spend more time. And I think, you know, maybe the hope is that that could occur in smaller spaces too, apartments, balconies, that you just sort of, because you're there, you just make the most out of the space that you have. Because again, with our little projector, it can be inside on a blank wall, giving us a movie experience. You know, one thing, the interior and exterior architecture in Paris, that's so special. So it's urban places, pretty limited, Mm -hmm. you know, for the average person, the balcony and so even if you didn't have a balcony, but let's say you're in a condominium or an apartment, even creating a seating area that's connected to a window, mm-hmm. where in Paris you'd have, it, the balcony might be 18 inches, mm-hmm. but just opening those, whether they're French doors or windows and just sitting, there's a way to feel like you're outside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially if, with the plant, if you have the plantings, indoor plants, but they're sort of oriented around that window, you're giving that garden right feel and opening you know depending on the weather opening the windows having the breeze come through but it's that time we spent at your relative's apartment in paris it was so some of the most special parts of that was sitting on the balcony having Mm -hmm. having meals Mm -hmm. it was a very shallow space but it was it was enough it was enough for a table well the view i mean it was in the montmartre neighborhood up on a, so we were a little bit up, up on house <laughs> so you sort of had a view <laughs> view for days it was a very very special gift to be able to stay there for our honeymoon so yeah today's episode is all uh, kind of all about making the most with what you have or mm-hmm. perhaps with what you find uh, we'll get into that in a moment but you had an interesting talk this week with a colleague in the landscape sciences world can you tell us a little bit about that we'll maybe tease a future episode oh we, sure i know we used to tease episodes all the time and i used to give a shout out to our listeners all the time <laughs> we're, new. we're nearly a year in so we're veterans of this podcasting thing i don't want to forget kind of where we came from so so we can tease episodes as we prepare them and also absolutely we're we're seeing listeners from all over We thank you for spending some of your time in this day and age with us. Um, We hope that you're hearing things that are either useful or at a minimum, just sort of refreshing and relaxing as we talk about the out of doors and, you know, bringing something to your lives as you're listening. So thank you so much for tuning in. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so sorry. I was getting (laughs) my notes here. (laughs) (laughs) Stalling for time. So yeah, take us through. Well, the gentleman who's the I believe the title is director of Millennium Park in Chicago. I had a really exciting, enthusiastic conversation with Scott Stewart. So Millennium Park more or less reinvigorated downtown Chicago. But there's mm. what they call the loop, which is like the the inner business district. And there's an elevated subway, or I guess it's not a subway, an elevated commuter railroad, which creates this loop. So they call it the loop. And it was sort of a it was not a vibrant downtown. People went to work there and that was it. And they, the. That's uh, true of many downtowns, though. I mean, even downtown Manhattan, like if you're there on, on a weekend or, you know, I mean, it's still New York City, so it's quite usually quite busy. But downtown Houston in the evening, mm-hmm. um, I've been there for concerts and, you know, people are going sort of like into this destination, perhaps a theater or a concert hall. And of course, this would be <laughs> when we're back to having performing arts, which is near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, downtowns are, are are sort of just work areas. And then people flee to the apartments or suburbs somewhere farther away. So that's an example. When there's when the program, when there's a single program of Ooh. office work or whatever it might be, factory work, when that program is not being occupied, then it's empty. 
So the, the magic word, mixed use. So a park brings people. You have, can have your lunch. There's some people that are working there. There could be concessions, vendors. You can have a sandwich or something to drink, ice cream. Well, and that's a good term for our yard. You know, just to think in the small scale and then the civic scale, because we don't do a ton of civic, full-scale civic projects. We don't talk about them quite as much on the program, which is, I guess, what we're getting to with this interview. But the idea of mixed use really is true for our own gardens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. The kiddie pool out there on a hot afternoon just gives us these extra hours to kind of be there. It's not just sitting on the porch in the late evening kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then that the space, that it's functional, like we have vegetable garden, maybe we'll add to it. It could be a bird bath we discussed Mm -hmm. over there as an axial point. Mm -hmm. But then then it's also beautiful and good landscape architecture does that. And so the the conversation was very exciting. It's the, the history of the park, all the components, talking about public horticulture, people that enter that are entering the field as horticultural professionals, how the park's maintained, and there's all different facets of that, outside contractors, then there's the parks department. It's a what's now is sort of the norm with beautiful parks is there's a public-private partnership. So there's often a conservancy or a group of individuals aboard that help fund the space. And then the municipality also funds it. So instead of having a budget shortfall and then the park goes downhill, which used to happen all the time, (laughs) (laughs) these conservancies can pick up the slack. And it's often neighboring businesses and citizens of means that value public space and that they see it's for the greater good and that it brings economic activity it's and it increases mental health physical health activity well and it gives folks who are not going into the horticultural profession an opportunity to participate in these landscapes so Mm -hmm. you may not devote you know you may be a lawyer by trade and so you're you're not in the garden 24 7 (laughs) but you have an opportunity to really contribute in a way, which is really nice, which we talk Mm -hmm. about in our volunteering episode. So we'll get into more about these great civic spaces and, and not just the design, but the administration of them as a, as a future episode. Right. Very good. So today's episode is all about reduce, reuse, recycle, repurpose, (laughs) repurpose, (laughs) Upcycle, I guess, is a term that's sometimes used. The idea that there are a lot of materials that are already out there. And I think this is great as we think about changing, changing production, changing accessibility to products in kind of a topsy-turvy world right now. There's still a lot out there that perhaps we can make use of in our landscapes if we're open to the idea of, you know, reusing, recycling materials especially but you mentioned dividing plants right so there's even a way you know you one could conceivably even start collecting seeds if they wanted to propagate things i mean Mm -hmm. you know if you're if you're out there in the seeing the wildflowers i don't know how that's done (laughs) well people that are plant collectors that's exactly what they do oh yeah and it could be on my friends in horticulture they have posts all the time Mm -hmm. so it could be university of florida university of vermont nebraska are going out to native areas, wild areas, even potentially like a, a botanic garden or a design landscape. There might be like the John Ferry Garden outside of Houston has rare and unusual plants from Texas, Mexico, Asia. So there's 
the collecting of the seed, there's often some kind of an institution involved that could help with the, the production, turning those seeds. But there's often volunteers, enthusiasts, and with some information, you can do that on your own. Well, I'm always, I feel, I'm always so thrilled when I get volunteers from my compost pile, usually a pepper, <laughs> sometimes a, a squash, the hardier little, little vegetables will sometimes come back. Right. And, you know, I feel like oh, I've done a good turn for the environment because <laughs> I didn't just throw my, you know, my vegetable matter in the trash into the landfill where apparently because it's sort of an anaerobic environment, things don't decompose, even if they're mm. biodegradable necessarily. And yet here it is in my, in my healthy little compost bin, and then I get a new crop of vegetables. So we actually will be putting together a class on propagating seeds mm-hmm. and things like that for our online classes, which are starting to gain you know traction and, right. and popularity. Lots of interest, momentum. So exciting. And I feel like very much a podcast person by saying for our listeners, we're <laughs> offering 25% off the class. So they're at different price points for the the different types of landscape science material that you'll be getting. So hopefully there's a class there that would interest you. So promo code landscape 2020. Beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Every podcast I listen to that has an actual sponsor, they get to do promo code. So it's for those who are big podcast people, they'll know why I'm excited. Anyway, promo code landscape 2020 for any of our classes. You can get that at checkout. You know, we even have like a gift card option. So if there's someone you know who might like a class, maybe you know it all, but you think they could learn a little, right. you can send them a gift card in an amount that matches sort of one of the series sets. So we've got mm-hmm. our sort of biology and ecology courses, then we have our master pruning courses and kind of a mix in there. Oh, we're taking feedback too. So and people design. expressed interest in plants of the Northeast or native plants. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. And so that, Things are in the work. It's sort of like one quarter at a time. So we're, we'll be working on classes that will come out in the summer now. Right. And through, through the spring, we've worked on class. This, the winter and the spring, we've worked on classes that are out now. So if you don't see something you'd like to take or you, yeah, basically if you see something, if you have a suggestion, you can let us know mm-hmm. and we can look into developing that content. Right. Promo code landscape 2020. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So let's talk a little more. So that's a little bit, not to leave plants out of the conversation entirely. Obviously, plants sort of recycle themselves all the time by reproducing. (laughs) That's how that, you know, life works. Materials don't necessarily do that. They don't reproduce. They're actually a a finite resource, Mm -hmm. really, if you think about it. Either you're going to mine it and put it somewhere or it's going to stay there, but it's not necessarily replicating and you know replenishing which means the reuse of materials is a really important ecological step philosophically it's it's almost like spiritually a sound practice to try to make the most out of things that we've already extracted from the earth so tell us a little bit about this industry it's a whole field well i've gotten excited i've had over the course of the years there's been projects that called for unique well they would call Projects call for materials always. <laughs> and so I know enough to know that historic materials. So instead of saying used, you know, it's been uh, previously owned or like with cars, that's, you know, they'll use different terms that sound more favorable than used. I mean, some of the items that would, that would occur, bricks, 
all types of stone. So things that could have been stone curbing. So that's still used today. But imagine in the U.S., roads and curbing. It was definitely in the 1800s, and some of it even a little older. So when a road is updated, in some cases, maybe it's it's no longer safe. It's no longer suited for for its use. Those materials are taken out, and so there are individuals, organizations that would harvest those. So the materials, in some cases, might be free. You know, if the if it's in in Cleveland, Ohio, they say if you want to take up this road, you can have it. <laughs> We're going to have to pay to take it away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm guessing on that, but so there's materials that have a lot of character, interest. Stones and bricks would be the big categories. I mean, if you think in the 1800s, sidewalks, curb streets were made of brick and stone, more or less. They weren't using asphalt. That, like, I don't know the exact date, but it came a little later. And one interesting tidbit when they were the Erie Canal that goes east to west across New York State from, I mean, roughly Buffalo to Albany, you know, give or take. When they were, they were digging that canal, they came across an area where there was a stone deposit, Medina. So this Medina stone, it was a large deposit of that. And so that is like this reddish, beautiful, from the photos, it looks somewhat porous. So that was used extensively in America for as bricks, a stone, you know, like the shape of a brick, and for curbing and sidewalks. And so these materials that were harvested during, you know, centuries ago, and they've like more or less lived their useful life. <laughs> and those are now available to be repurposed. And there's there's companies, there's one in Iowa that I looked up, there's one in near Buffalo and Amherst, and there's one near Boston that specialize in these materials. I do think messaging matters. I mean, it's funny to think that the way you describe something makes a difference in how enthusiastic people are about it. So this idea of repurposing, you know, materials, there is always a push to get new in a mm-hmm. way, if you just think about like the marketing apparatus and right. how, how we're like, you know, because that's something that a company can develop and design and then, you know, have sort of copyright and <laughs> control. Mm-hmm. And this idea of just going and finding things and reusing them is a little bit different. It's not inexpensive necessarily to reclaim materials. I'm not saying that this is necessarily a free way to get stuff. I think if you are going to be a materials hunter, you have to think carefully about where you're looking and what the rules are governing whether you can take items from different types of property. Is a park? Is it just a waterfront? So things are essentially free. You know, I come from the sort of the school of like the National Park Service ethos, which is leave only your footprints, take only your memories. So Mm -hmm. it'd be great to take a bunch of free rocks from Yosemite and use them to make, (laughs) you know, line your flower beds. But you really shouldn't do that. It's not allowed. And nor should we, because the, the concept is that if we all took from wild spaces, there'd be nothing left. Right. Which is really the point of sort of preserving them. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about how you would interface with one of these companies that has found a way to maybe they've been called in to remove stuff. So it's been sourced. It's funny because we're talking about recycling, but you still have to think, was it sourced ethically? Right. Or did correct. I just steal it? <laughs> <laughs> right. How did you come by this? 
<laughs> is it lost and found or is it stealing by finding? So you have to be careful there. Like to trace it. So going back to a traditional material supplier has an inventory, like a supermarket where they have bread and milk and you pretty much can always count on it. So limestone, bluestone, brick, it's cut to a certain size. So it's pretty easy to work with. Like from a critic's point of view, it's not that exciting. It's so uniform, it's a little bland. So working with these companies that have repurposed, reclaimed materials, this one that's, that's out of Iowa, some of them are quite large and they have holding yards throughout the U.S. If you're near Omaha, Nebraska, maybe there's, maybe there's a holding yard there or, or in a neighboring city. So how it would work, they would work with architects, designers, and the whole range of creative professionals. It could be a builder. It could be a homeowner, possibly. Some of them are pretty general, where you would send them, say, I'm looking for, there's something called a clinker, which is more or less like an imperfect brick. And so you see that in, in European buildings, and it, it adds a lot of character. So it could be a brick that's been overfired, so it's like black and burned, or it's twisted. So you could be very specific. We're you know, building a complex, a Tudor-style building, and we want some historic imperfect bricks to mix in, to add character. And then they say, well, what color, what quantity? They'd send you photos. You could send them photos of what you're looking for. Then they'd send you samples. Uh, so you're more or less sending bricks or stones through the mail. Now, some of these, are, it can be a, ven a veneer. So you know, it can be quite thin, possibly. So that would be some of the larger repurposed companies. Some of the more boutique, smaller ones would not have much of an inventory. They'd have just very basic inventory. And they would be more or less, like you said, hunt, like material hunters. And you'd say we have in Aspen, Colorado, we're building a ski lodge and we're looking for this kind of material, like a yellowish gold, and it needs to be granite. And then you would more or less develop a profile of what you're looking for. <laughs> and then they will go out hunting for it. And they would have, they would have their sources. So the people that are the, re the repurposing companies are quite specialized people that would have these quantities, it's even less of a net. It's not easy to find. There's people out there that have it. It's often properties where there's just piles of stone sitting there, where maybe like when the old Croton Aqueduct was built or other properties, there were stones used. And those old, there's places near Lindhurst Mansion where you walk through the woods and there's a pile of giant stones that were never used for the construction. And so the, the material hunters, they would have a network of, of that. And then they would sort through, and then it would get to the point where there'd be a price, and then it would be delivered. In some cases, there's quarries that have been closed, and so that would be another network of there's this uh, green stone quarry in Vermont, and it's po it'd be possible to to harvest stones that have already been quarried but are just sitting there. I know there there do seem to be companies that are sort of like the aesthetic is. I guess shabby chic is a term. Like there are ways to buy new items that have been distressed to oh, look right. like they're they've been repurposed. And I guess you know my thinking would be that so as is true with a lot of design, you kind of figure out the program, you figure out your aesthetic, you develop the idea board, you get a sense of what it is you're looking for, and then if there's a little bit of patience in the process, you might just go to estate sales or and see I, i'm not even sure if everything in the estate is <laughs> necessarily has a tag on it maybe there's something in the garden that you see that you could even ask about or you know going to antique stores it's the the garden antiques are not 
again, not inexpensive. It's people sort of understand the value of them. But if you can figure out the piece that you're looking for and have that kind of enthusiasm for hunting for it, that these right. these material hunters are seem to have, it might be possible to kind of come by it by other means. And it's just the choice of like, you know, I'm I'm one of those people, especially especially today, who's like the Amazon package like every other day. <laughs> I'm I'm not really proud of that, but it's it's true for me. And yet the ease of kind of getting it through Amazon is maybe some a discipline to kind of un unlearn mm-hmm. and you know go back to sort of authentic sources. And when you're hunting for it, I guess it would be if it's similar. Like with a specimen plant, it's having your sort of description, but then being open, open mm. to surprises. I mean, I comb stone yards, antique garden element dealers, nurseries on a regular basis. So I have this, it's a network of, of these experts, and then it's a mental inventory. Sometimes it's a photographic inventory of things that I don't have a, I don't have a short-term need for. So I mean, even thrift stores. I mean, you sometimes find there's like the shelves with all the objects that maybe would be good planters, or um, we talked about ornaments in our last episode, and you have, you know, mirrors that could be placed in the landscape and things like that. So I love a good thrift store. <laughs> right. I mean, like, well, like one of the famous ones I have not been to yet, which would be exciting to go to, is the Paris flea market. Oh, wow. And so that is just like, like legendary for historic garden elements. I've been in, on estates and special properties where, like, imagine a stone water trough that was repurposed as a fountain or a fire pit, or which came from you know, this Paris flea market. So there's, yeah, reimagining it, staying open. I mean, more or less like having a catalog, a, a catalog of some sort. So when the project does come up, that there's the right use for it. Now, some some designers will have an inventory, so they'll have. They will go to, you know, it could be in Pennsylvania or it could be in Paris or Santa Monica. It could be in some place in the world uh, where antiques and things are traded. And some designers have an inventory. It's not necessarily open to the public, but it's when, when the need arises, they have stock to use. Well, and we've talked before. It's funny, you know, a little, there is a little bit of a mission in, in kind of explaining why things cost what they cost. And I think this description of like, the extent to which people go to to try to find the right material to source it, you know, you know, mm-hmm. the conversation and be the ones to do the the whole taking it out of the like construction zone or whatever. It helps to understand why some found objects are going to cost more when it really mm-hmm. is like, well, it was this old item that was going to be thrown away anyway. You know, <laughs> why does it cost so much? So kind of thinking through like the investment that a business owner has put into finding the right piece is mm-hmm. it's just there's something nice about kind of like kind of seeing that for what it is and knowing oh it's not just like unreasonably inflated but it really is they've curated this specifically uh, that's a really good point and that it's like their network they're holding on to these pieces often there's that specialty nursery that has specimen plants uh, outside of portland and they have japanese maples as one of the categories and i said oh how long so they'll buy plants that are more or less going to be discarded because they're they're too big to be sold to the average nursery. They buy them and they hold them. And I said, "Well, how long would you have? Would you be holding before you you sold it?" He's, and he said, "Between one year and ten years." So it's the plant could sit there for ten years, and so it's 
that holding that inventory, like the availability of these special materials, it does come at a premium, like you said. On, on one of the websites from the materials, it, it said how the materials tell a story. Mm. So it was a horse post in downtown Philadelphia. You know, so the, there's this rich patina and this, this like rich sense of place with these materials. That is what you're getting. And that's like priceless. And it could be, remember there was some of these garden groups that I participate on online. A person had like about a half dozen paving stones and they wanted to repurpose them. They were used and they said, oh, maybe I could paint them. I could do something to them. So with these unique, with these used materials, they're often not enough for a whole project, Mm -hmm. like for a whole house of bricks or a whole walk. So what I've done before is you can intersperse the used element with readily available material. So it's so those half a dozen used stones, you add a dozen new ones, and then the reclaimed ones are interspersed. So there's still a character, but you can fulfill the project. And then it doesn't look, it's not, it's not half a walk. <laughs> See, I've watched Antiques Roadshow. I know that term provenance, <laughs> so that you know <laughs> something of the history of an object. And, and of mm-hmm. course, in terms of valuing you know, expensive antiques, it's meant to say, oh, someone special owned this. But I really do love that idea that like, well, we're all someone special. So if some mm-hmm. human feet walked over these cobblestones or human hands, you know, this post was hewn at a time when they were using hand tools, that there really is something special about that energy that gets sort of brought into objects, which is, mm-hmm. I guess, purely sort of philosophical, but it it feels special to me. In yeah, that sense of place, you know, that the, the genius of the place that when you're in a special place, it could be a cathedral, even, even with no, I've been in spaces that were religious. I had no, uh, like in Chicago, there's a Baha'i temple, which I think each continent has a, a Baha'i temple. I don't, I don't know too much about that faith, but the place had, there was such a sense of, there was such a compelling feeling that there is energy, mm. you know, these spaces that are beautifully crafted, beautiful materials. And so it, it transcends, there is something there, something that's compelling. And these materials, I think, can add that to your project. So anything else you'd like to tell us, I guess, about the kind of the industry behind this or suggestions you have for people that interspersing the old with the new, I think is a really great sort of design idea that, that's fun. So what else can you Well, share let's with see. You know, what I've done, I don't use these types of materials too often because it has to be the right project. I'm not like in a, I'm not a paving. That's not like our, our main practice. Uh, <laughs> We're plant people for the most part, but yes, right. the materials always come in. So, I mean, what I've done over the course of my career is develop relationships with these with suppliers, with these vendors. And when we travel, call them up. I've enjoyed getting to know you online. I'd like to meet, learn what you do. And that that is time well spent. So then we've gotten referrals that way where we've been to a nursery in Oregon and then there was a project and the designer was from Europe and the nursery person referred us, you know, to be a consultant. So it's, I don't do it for that reason, but having this network of people. Well, it's taking an interest in people and their passion. You know, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't be a materials hunter if you didn't really (laughs) care or, you know, weren't interested. So I think there's that sense of like really caring about caring about what other people care about and right. learning from them, you know, firsthand about that. Right. That the supplier out of um, the Boston area, I mean, he talks about that, like a passion for stone and they really mean it, you know, 
and the the family the uh, brick repurposing company that's in there's two the one i think in iowa i think it's on the second generation i i spoke in, i think it was the father so it's now so like another component of it it's building the relationship with the suppliers sort of getting to know how they work and so when i meet a vendor i want to know like that oregon specialty nursery how do you work and then what do you have so then knowing that i can work that into an appropriate project well, that makes so a lot of sense. if you have no idea how yeah. they work oh i'll just call i have a project in southampton uh, why don't you just send a truck from oregon to southampton so a free two-day shipping <laughs> right it doesn't work no. that way and you know, we only like it's temperature sensitive we, mm. we're not going to send a truck after mm. a certain date yeah. it has to be air conditioned so there's and when these materials so sort of knowing how they work i do that in advance so then when the project does come up you can say well you know this is like a three-month lead time that's not going to work for this project or the massachusetts stone person he was saying i mean some of the projects will have like a nine-month lead up of like research sourcing it you know it can be pretty involved they can be coming from other countries there can be all kinds of paperwork well it's helpful for you but it's also helpful for the clients because we often have to then give them an expectation of lead time mm-hmm. which is important you know You're right and that could be the materials ought to be part of the design conversation where people will say i would like it to look like this well brick in the shade and that's and this reclaimed brick is not going to be a great material in Vermont where you're going to have salt and snow and you're going to have snow plowing. That would be, could be a disaster. <laughs> so that could be maybe used for a patio where you're not going to use it in the winter. So the, the materials can really be integrated so it's appropriate. So at the end of the day, the client's happy. It's a successful design. The other component is, is a skilled contractor, artisan, craftsperson to install these. Materials are not necessarily uniform. So the average contractor might not know how to work with them. They say, oh, I've never worked with brick that's crooked or, or warped or some of these, these curbs. So you can imagine it's, it's a curb that, that was set in the ground. It's long and thin. And so it can be set on its side as a paving material. So some of these materials are like heavy, unruly. It's not your everyday material. They could be very heavy. You might have, have a special machine. So that would be sort of the follow-up is if we had a project doing lots of lead time, which I've done, there's going to need to be a crane to move this tree and chatting with the, with a contractor. And they might say, oh, we don't do that. You need a permit mm. in New York City to have a crane. We don't have insurance. doesn't cover that. So it's, it's sort of uh, like working, working through the process before you have to. So then when you meet the client, what's not great is getting them excited. We're going to have this reclaimed material. And they fall in love with it and they say, oh, we, like we can't get it in quantity or there's no one here in this like rural community that knows how to do that. And to have somebody come in and do it, it's going to be too expensive. Well, and, and just to say, it's not really our role to like denigrate any, any business practice over, you know, but we're always trying to sort of talk up what we think are good practices. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of materials, while reclaimed mm-hmm. is great. There are great strides in material science that are are meant for things like, you know, porous uh, surfacing for driveways. Like we've mm-hmm. talked about that before as well, that, that new is not bad. Reclaimed right. is not old and stuffy and should never be used. It really is so important to kind of be thinking through the program and, and the climate and selecting the best material for the landscape 
in kind of this holistic sort of sensibility. So not to give the impression that we're saying like never buy new or right, we point. shouldn't be producing anything new. Of course not, because there's a lot of really forward looking new materials that are used to address things like climate change all the time. And that's right. really, really important as well. So the reclaimed materials, they can fulfill the Green Building Council sustainability where they could be sourced. It could be an abandoned farm in Pennsylvania and it's they're creating a, like a new civic plaza in Philadelphia. So that would, could be perfect. That would be an example. Great. So anything else to share before we wrap up this episode? You know, I think that about covers it. <laughs> Great. Do you want to give us our design principle for the day? Sure. Let's see. Okay. So the d- design principle for the week is repetition. And so the idea, repetition adds interest, repetition with variation though. So these reclaimed materials can add something very special that, you know, reclaimed granite curbing that's now part of a, of a parking plaza. Instead of just asphalt, it's these pavers that have been laid on their side. So interspersing these special materials, there is repetition. That's important. So if you can only get one urn, for instance, is making sure that that works within the design. Maybe that one really special urn is the centerpiece of the whole courtyard. It's so unusual and so special to really highlight it. If they're paving materials, maybe it has a very eclectic feel. There's in Rochester, there's it's an old firehouse, Rochester, New York, where it's been repurposed as a crafts from local and regional artists and artisans are there called Craft Company Number Six, because it was number six firehouse, I think. And so they have these repaved, uh, repurposed paving stones from a, uh, one of these vendors. And so the, that whole experience is rich, eclectic. Things that wouldn't normally be put together are put together, and it, but it really works. And these, and the paving is sort of telling that story. But it helps to have a little bit of repetition so it doesn't look like a mistake or out of place. Like Correct. just one might not read as intentional, whereas a few or some sort of repetition helps tell the eye that like, no, this is intended. <laughs> well, in Japanese gardens, I use old millstones yeah. as a paving stone. So to have one... It depends on the scale, but to have it repeated throughout the garden, I guess that that's all part of the repetition is all part of the design aesthetic and and weighing is this does this suit the design in the program? Great. Well, that's it for this episode of In the Landscape. We hope we gave you some great material to think about for your own uh, your own use in the garden, your own business purpose. So that's really our intention here with the podcast. We hope. You'll remember our promo code, Landscape2020, if you're interested in the classes. If you're not, (laughs) that's fine. But we wanted to do something special for our listeners and make that available. Mm -hmm. Um, So be sure to check that out if you're interested. And um, we look forward to another great episode next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details, 
And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.